Oh. Back when Nate had just turned five, I noticed he was eating breakfast unusually fast. And I said, Nate, why are you in such a hurry to eat breakfast? And he said, Dad, I've got to go make up my bed. And that was the deal at the time. I think we kind of lost that deal. Uh, but if they didn't make up their beds, they couldn't play outside. All right? Well, the next day, we gathered in his room to have family worship. And I had already praised him for his consistency and his faithfulness, his example to his siblings on making his bed. But when we got inside his room, I noticed his, his, his bed was unmade. And I said, Nate, what's the deal? I commend you for making up your bed. And then as soon as I commend you, I look and you haven't made your bed up. And he said, well, Dad, that's okay. You see, <laughs> you see, it's raining today. <laughs> and I can't play outside. Of course, that betrayed the fact that his outward obedience was not motivated by love for his father or his mother. It was self-serving. But I think this is an apt illustration of all false religion. And here's the problem with false religion. It's easy for our hearts to deceive us when this is the case, and then for our hearts to find false security in these actions. And that's why this text in Jeremiah 7 is so important. The theme of this text is misguided reliance on external religion. Misguided reliance on external religion. That's where Israel was in Jeremiah 7, and it's why they need a reformation. Indeed, Jeremiah 7 is one of the great reformation sermons in all of history. And even some, perhaps most, conservative scholars believe that the sermon in verses 1 to 15, and that's what we're looking at tonight, is picked up and described again in chapter 26. Though it is possible Jeremiah could have preached this very sermon again in chapter 26, just like you have with the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. Sermon on the Mount being Matthew 5 to 7 and the Sermon on the Plain being Luke chapter 6. Uh, very similar content, but I believe that both sermons were preached at different times in different places. This well could be the case here. But if it was the same sermon that's picked up in chapter 26, because remember, Jeremiah is not... A chronological, uh, you know, he's not focused on being chronological. If it is the case, then this sermon would have been dated in the early reign of Jehoiakim, around 609, 608 B.C. Why is that important? Well, it's been about 18 years, if that's the case, after his call to the ministry. And more importantly, it's about three years before the three-part exile begins, 605 B.C. So the hammer's about to fall if that was the case. And it's a sermon 
It almost cost him his life. Now, if that's the case, why would this sermon be placed here in Jeremiah 7? Well, a key question, perhaps the key question in chapters 1 to 6 to review is found all the way back in chapter 5, verse 19. And here's the question. When your people say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so shall you serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Often the judgment is God giving us over to our desires. That is the key question in the first six chapters. And remember, Jeremiah in its final form was written to the exiles. It was written to the people who had already experienced the exile. They are in Babylon. And he's writing to them to remind them why they're in Babylon. They're not victims. They're culprits. And here he's going to remind them why. Now, this is generally called Jeremiah's temple sermon. You'll see why in just a moment. Notice in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord. For Jeremiah to say that is equivalent to Paul saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why would he remind us he's an apostle? Why would Jeremiah remind us here that this is a word of the Lord? Because if you have a problem with it, the problem is not with Jeremiah. Or, in Paul's case, with Paul. The problem is with God and his word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Now, I have been in several situations where I was preaching to a group that did not like what I was saying. It generally occurs at funerals. I'll be invited to, to speak at a funeral because the family doesn't have a pastor, a preacher. And so they'll invite me in. I'll get a call from the nursing home or the, or the funeral home and say, can you... Can you do this funeral, this family? I always say yes if I can work it into my schedule because it's always a, a gospel opportunity. But it's also something I've experienced with sports teams. They bring you in and they're expecting you to give them a charge so that the players will run through the, a wall for the coach. And then again, I bring the gospel. Uh, it, 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 is, it is a very uncomfortable thing to speak in those, seven, uh, those, those situations, those settings. It's one of the hardest things I do. I can't imagine Jeremiah's angst here. He is being set up. The Lord is setting him up in the temple. All right? And if this was preached during the time of Jehoiakim, they have 18 years history with Jeremiah. They have heard his message for 18 years and he was well known for his crazily unpopular sermons to the religious Israelites. And so he's sent here to the gates of the temple to proclaim the word of God. 
And this ensures that everyone is going to hear him. In fact, it's most likely pre, uh, it's most likely the case that this was preached during the time of one of the great festivals, like the Passover. In other words, this message was delivered to the religiously observant people of Israel. This message was given to people who went to church on Sunday night and on Wednesday night and was involved in VBS. Reformation never begins with the culture. Reformation always begins. Reformation always begins with the people of God. And like any good preacher, he states his two main points first and then explains each of them in turn. We see the main points of this sermon in verses 3 and 4. Notice in verse 3, which is a command, and verse 4, which is a warning. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds... And I will let you dwell in this place. So verse 3 is a command. Verse 4 is a warning. Do not trust in these deceptive words. Now he's going to repeat what he's been hearing. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. He's repeating it over and over again. It's like he's heard it till he's sick of it. This is the temple of the Lord. So verses 3 and 4 are collectively the main points of this temple sermon. The people had placed their trust in the temple rather than in God. And therefore, they could not believe that they were in danger. After all, God had made a covenant with Abraham, which meant God had made covenant with them because the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And what was in that covenant? God was giving them the land. At Sinai, he he made them his chosen people. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. And then he makes this covenant with David where he will have an everlasting kingdom. kingdom. And, And hadn't the nation survived when the Assyrians came against the northern tribes in 722? And then... Most recently in 701 B.C., Sennacherib had come in and they had survived that. And so, unfortunately, as a result of all that, they were treating the temple like the earlier Israelites had treated the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel 4. Remember that? Like a, like a lucky charm. Jeremiah's message is a warning To everyone who thinks religious acts are sufficient. I know coming from the South, it's known to be the Bible Belt for a reason. I suppose you could consider Louisville is in that Bible Belt to a certain degree. But I'm from the belt buckle (laughs) of, of the Bible Belt. Where some down there trust in their church attendance. They look into the fact that their neighbors don't go to church. They go to church. So like the people in verse 4, they, they, they trust in deceptive words. I go to church. I go to church. I go to church. Some trust in ordinances. I know some people in this city that trust in ordinances. I got baptized. 
I got baptized. I got baptized. You'll ask somebody, do you, do you know God? Have you have, do you have a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? And their answer is, well, I got baptized. They're trusting the ordinances. Or, I know, especially in Alabama, I never met a non-Southern Baptist until I got out of the state. Um, they trust in denominational affiliation. I'm a Southern Baptist. I'm a Southern Baptist. I'm a Southern Baptist. Or, I've seen lost people on Southern Seminary's campus. I'm convinced they're lost because eventually they apostatize anyway. But they trust in their theological fidelity. I love theological purity. I love theological purity. I love theological purity. And that's what's so dangerous about religion. There's absolutely nothing wrong about the temple. Or these other things for that matter. In fact... Most of them, except for the fact that you have to be a Southern Baptist, most of these things are absolutely necessary for growing and for maturing as a believer. The danger comes when you trust in them. You look to them for your security. Well, verses 5 to 7, we get the explanation of the command. This is how this is organized. In verse 3, we saw the command, which is the main point. Verse 4, we saw the warning. Well, in verses 5 to 7, we see the explanation for the command of verse 3. Notice we in verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds. Again, going back to verse 3, what did he say? Amend your ways and your deeds. So in verse 5, he's explaining that. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, and he's appealing to the law here, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." So what does he mean by amend your ways? Well, he's making it clear that God's promise to let them remain in the land is conditional. Notice, and has been since, you could say, the covenant conditions that were given all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 13. And so there's a tension here in verse 7. Notice in verse 5, if. And then in verse 7, then. If you truly amend your ways, verse 5, verse 7, then I will let you dwell in the place. And that tension runs all the way through the Old Testament. On the one hand, there's this notion that... There is a condition. On the other hand, notice verse 7 at the very end. It ends with the official theology of the land. The land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. So you see that tension. One sense, they must obey. In another sense, it was given to them. So here's the question. 
Was this land an unconditional gift or was it a conditional gift? Yes. Yes is the answer. On the one hand, the land had been promised to Abraham and to his descendants. But on the other hand, it remained the Lord's land. And he determined the conditions under which Israel would abide in the land. And so, if they practice biblical justice with one another. Now, that does not mean equality of outcomes. This is not socialism or communism that they are calling for. Biblical justice, where you care for the sojourner. You care for the widow. You care for the orphan responsibilities that we have to them. It is biblical justice. If they didn't oppress others, if they did not shed innocent blood or worship other gods, he'd let them remain in the land. So the the tension here, in other words, is the relationship between grace and obedience. Now this isn't synergism where I'm working my way with along with God to receive my inheritance to to receive my ultimate salvation we recognize that even our obedience is the fruit of grace and yet it's a responsibility that we have it is both a gift and a task so it's grace and it's obedience and this is a crucial balance that corrects two false assumptions legalism on one hand merit theology and antinomianism on the other That is, I'm under grace. It doesn't matter what I do now. I've received promises, and I will rest in those promises. It does not matter what I do. Judah was preferring to claim the privileges of a covenant relationship without assuming its responsibilities. In other words, they wanted justification without sanctification. They wanted heaven without holiness. That's essentially the problem. Well, verses 8 to 11 gives us the explanation of the warning. So again, verses 5 to 7 explain verse 3. And verses 8 to 11 explain the warning of verse 4. Notice in verse 8, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Again, he mentioned those deceptive words in verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple. This is the temple. This is the temple. He said, you've trusted in these to no avail. Will you steal? Will you murder? Commit adultery? Swear falsely? Make offerings to Baal? And go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. And say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So in short, they thought they could spend six days a week breaking God's law, living lives of immorality... As long as they spent one day listening to sermons, listening to Sunday school teachers. And Jeremiah accuses them of repeated violations of the Ten Commandments, 
especially mentioning six of them, the eighth, the sixth, the seventh, the ninth, the first, and the second. They felt no shame about breaking God's law. And then they would come and stand in the temple that bore God's name, and there they believed they were safe. That is epidemic where I grew up. So far as God was concerned, the temple had become a den of robbers. Now, this is quoted by, by Jesus in Matthew 21, verse 13. What is he referring to here? Well, bandits often took refuges in caves. So they would take refuge in caves in the Judean hills for protection until their pursuers gave up searching. And then they would emerge from those, cage, those, those caves to commit other crimes. So these caves were known as dens of robbers. For Israel, it was the temple. They were using the temple as a safe house. They would come out of that temple, and they would go on a sin spree. And then they would use their temple as their hideout. Again, false security. Using religion, using the place of religion to cover them as if their immorality was irrelevant to God. And they thought they could fool God by showing up on the Sabbath and then do whatever they want the rest of the time. In other words, they wanted justification. They just did not want the God who justifies. But they're not deceiving God. Notice there he says, I have been watching. I have been watching. That's a very horrific Sobering statement. I literally, I also can see. I can see what you're doing. You're not getting away with it. Just because the hammer hasn't fallen yet does not mean it's not going to fall. Don't confuse long suffering and patience with indifference. And they were doing that. A further warning. That the temple was not exempt from God's wrath in, is that he reminds them of what happened at Shiloh. Y'all remember Shiloh. We were in early 1 Samuel and that was the place where they had set up shop, where the ark was. It's where the sanctuary was the first 200 years in the land. It's where they divided up uh, the, apportion, the portions for all of the different tribes. Uh, notice with me in verse 12. No, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, and which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. That's referring to the ten northern tribes, which is exactly what happened in 722 when the Assyrians came in. And so, what you have here with Shiloh... It was located about 18 miles north of Jerusalem. It was the first permanent place and, uh, for the tabernacle. And it was the shrine where 
uh, Eli, the high priest, you know, worked and functioned and where Samuel was called to be a prophet and yet the Philistines destroyed it. We saw that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Of course, these people would have known what happened to Shiloh, but they could not conceive that it would happen to the temple. If you read the accounts of the building of the temple, it was uh, massive. It was a massive work. Uh, much resources and money and time and importing lumber you know, from Lebanon. I mean, there was so much involved in the building of the temple. They could not conceive that God would destroy it. And Jeremiah said, he destroyed Shiloh because of the same kind of sin. You think he's going to turn a blind eye to you. And he reminded them that he warned them persistently. Now, time's going to reveal that that's exactly what happens. If this was during the, the period of Jehoiakim, then you're only talking three or four years before the hammer falls. And obviously they did not hear. But here's the thing. Even after they go into exile for 70 years and they come back, what do we see? Just read Malachi sometime. Um, they haven't changed. They're no more faithful to the covenant after they return from the land than they were before they went into exile. And that becomes the, the real tension and question of the Old Testament. How can this tension be resolved? Unconditional promises and conditional stipulations. It, it's, it's a tension you see throughout the Old Testament. For instance, in Exodus 34, when Moses says, Show me your way, show me your glory. And the Lord preaches a sermon about his attributes. And then it says, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but he by no means clears the guilty. So how can he forgive and at the same time punish the guilty? Attention. Attention. And in the same way here, you got this unconditional promise, and yet there are conditional stipulations. Of course, we know the answer to that tension is a person. Matthew 3 says that in verse 15 that Jesus came... And he came to fulfill all righteousness. What are we talking about here? Complete adherence to the law of God. Matthew 5, 17, he says, Don't think that I came to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. In Galatians 4, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, why would he be born under the law? He's coming to do what no one else has ever done. He's coming to fulfill the terms of the law. And it says to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so as the one who comes and keeps the terms of the covenant, you could say the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. You could say the terms of the covenant made with Adam. He keeps that as the covenant-keeping man. And then he is crushed for covenant breakers so that God could be true to his promises that he will save a people while at the same time true to himself that he must judge sin. 
That is how this tension is resolved. It's also how we overcome this sin cycle that we see in these pages, but we also see in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. It's, it's a sobering passage, but it reminds us how prone we are to be satisfied with religion and not satisfied with our God, our Creator, and our Redeemer. Father, I thank you that we have a Redeemer. I thank you for a Redeemer who has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. Thank you that we have a Redeemer who has fulfilled the terms of the law. He has fulfilled all righteousness as our last Adam. Thank you that we stand righteous in Him. And Lord, I pray as we go into business session that that standing would reflect itself in our attitudes towards one another. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.